The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. This is The Daily Dose, where we share the stories of people who inject drugs. People who inject drugs, you know, they're just not one type of person and the reason they inject, as we've found out, is as varied as them. Over the last seven podcasts, we've heard from a a journalist, a woman who injects to manage chronic pain... There was a motor mechanic trying to deal with addiction issues so he can get back to work. And, yeah, and there was a young woman who started injecting to experiment with a partner an older woman who went back to injecting after a 20-year hiatus after the death of her long-term partner. A gay Indigenous man who's no longer injecting but he experienced a lot of stigma and there was the couple who were still finding their way through. So today we meet Shay. She challenges our perceptions of what it is to be an injecting drug user. Shay is happy, full of life and joy. She has no intention of stopping use. It's interesting how challenging the very honest story of someone who is happy injecting drugs and has no plans to stop can be. Shay's charismatic, she's confident and she has this way of lighting up a room. It's hard not to fall a little bit in love with Shay. This final story really challenges us to pack away these stereotypes. You just can't ever know who anyone is or why they do what they do unless you sit on the back step and listen to who they are. I started taking heroin, and that's my preferred drug of choice, uh, when I was 16. That was the first time I'd ever taken it. I'm 57 in about a month. (laughs) So, yeah, um, I've been an active, daily using drug addict for the last 40 years. I've probably had three years off in that time, and I've had... Uh, four pregnancies, so I've had five children in that time, and I was um, using during the pregnancies, which a lot of people would be quite shocked about. But at that time, um, I thought it was a better choice being on $50 worth a day rather than methadone. But for my two youngest children, I ended up being in the region of Lismore. I moved from Sydney to Lismore by then, and they were born in Lismore Base Hospital, and I was on a small amount of methadone by then, 20 or 30 milligrams. So I've never been anything over about 40 milligrams, but I'm still an habitual user. Shay, um... Maybe if we could go right back to 16 um, when you first encountered 
um, heroin. Is there, was there a, any use of any other drugs prior to that? I had a 16-year-old babysitter who lived across the road and my brother was 15 months younger than I and my mum and dad split when I was eight years old. So my mum started going back to uni and she did a night course on a Wednesday night and she'd had to get this girl to babysit for us. And this girl we loved to bits, but uh, we found out like she was um, a junkie on heroin. Um, and she had a bikey boyfriend that she used to screw whenever she was babysitting my brother and I. And she'd give us tuinol, secanol, give us um, like smoking dope. Um, she'd bring her friends over. This is before I'd hit high school, so I was nine, ten years old. Um, and my mum did not have a clue about it. So this was happening on a regular basis. So nine, ten, and then I went to high school at eleven and a half because that was how old I was when I started at high school and I immediately fell in with the smoking gang and the people who sort of smoked cigarettes and thought it was really cool. But we moved to another location and I just started hanging around with this couple who lived in or had rented the local milk bar, had two young children under five. So I became their babysitter. I was 14, 15 by this stage. Um, He actually ended up um, sexually assaulting me, but I kept on going back there. So his wife got involved and then cigarette delivery guys got involved. So I ended up hanging around there for months and my mum had said, please don't hang around with them. I don't like them. And so I'd never tell her I was going there. It was down the road, but I kept on going back and back. And they'd have, you know, really explicit sexual magazines under the counters and they'd let their children be naked like their little girl be naked on the glass cabinets when the boarding house men would come around, you know. It was quite sordid and I worry about those kids <laughs> now to this day because this this couple was only like I was 13, 14 and he was 23 and she was 21 at the time. So... They were only like eight, ten years older than me, but it was a really different time in the late 70s and stuff back then. Um, and also I was the type of kid who was easily groomed, I realised later. So that was the trauma that started me becoming a, a vegetarian because the guy was a butcher as well as working in this milk bar and he had three fingers missing on his left hand. So I'd love to find that guy. Um, I yeah, because I know that he would have continued doing it to other people after me. But then the drugs, I'd still continued smoking pot all the way through, um, seeking it out. So um, went to a number of different schools because I was stealing stuff from my mum's friends and, like, stealing money from my mum's purse. My dad had moved to New South Wales. We were in Victoria, so I'd only see him school holidays. And... Yeah, he had a great job and he was quite respectable and responsible, but he was a workaholic. So we spent sort of like three weeks a year with our dad. <clears throat> I had a great relationship with him. My brother didn't. So it was, and my mum and my brother had a great relationship and my mother and I did not. So I was sort of feeling like ostracised growing up. I left home at 16 and a half. And the very night that um, I had my first exam in year 11, I'd had a shot of speed. And um, someone shot me up the first two times I ever used, but after that I wanted to know how to do it myself. And I was, Were you scared? Of no, no, not at all because wow. my friends had already been doing it and they'd said it was awesome and, it, you know, this speed stuff was great and 
gave you heaps of energy and back then it was a really pure thing, like a, a cap of speed was enough to get you through or me to get through two shots of having a weekend of staying up the whole weekend, like it was great quality. But then I had my first um, shot of heroin when I was 16 and a half and it was pink rocks that had been sent from Malaysia in a postcard and I had a quarter of a cap and I was the only one out of everyone who didn't throw up. Like all the other three people who shared it with us were throwing up madly everywhere and almost overdosing. But I just had this really cruisy time and thought this is excellent. Never looked back after that. Quit the speed by the time I was 18. And I've never really sort of, um, even though I went through NIDA, that was probably my cleanest time. So, but at the end of NIDA into my third year, I started using again. Can I just say too, like for a young person who's managing a habit and and actually going through one of the hardest courses yep. um, in Australia virtually when it comes to having to turn up, having to be absolutely on, how did you manage that? Like it, that, that would have been quite a challenge or? It, it, it kind of was, but for a time I realised I'm a really addictive personality. So for the times that I wasn't using during that process, I was like swimming laps and laps at the pool every morning kind of thing and um, just doing something that was really mega addictive every day and or riding the push bike to the university from Woolloomooloo, like up the Burke Street Hill every morning. Like it was a 12, I mean a 5K ride to Kensington every day. It ended up taking me 12 minutes or something. I'm incredibly blessed, I could say, that I've been in situations because actually the very first year of Operation Noah in um, Victoria, in it's a dog in a dealer sort of um, program or project every year the police down there would have Operation Noah and in Victoria and the very first year I think it must have been 1982 um, I got caught buying a cap of smack off a guy in King's uh, in uh, Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, and I'd walked out of the amusement parlour with the gear in my hand. I had a cop on either side as I came out and um, I didn't have time to throw the gear away. So they too took four hours of me being questioned to try and get the fact that it was this guy at the time who was a Maori and I kept on insisting it was a little Italian guy I'd bought it off and I never sort of divulged that it was this other guy I'd got it off because they really wanted him. And, um, yeah, but usually it's a dob-in-the-dealer type scenario where people ring up and say, oh, I think they're dealing down the road, but, yeah. Um, so that started my – I actually did a year's good behaviour bond that year, 18 to 19, Um no, by the time I got to court, I was actually 20. So I went overseas during that year. So I, I was overseas in England and Europe during that bond, which was crazy to me that I could leave the country and not have to worry about sort of being a good citizen in England. But, yeah, I ended up going to India for a month first and used heaps of opium over there, um, but went to England straight away after a nine- or ten-hour flight just hanging out for days with my 93-year-old grandma. I just thought, this is a big mistake. Wow. I ended up being totally straight whilst I was in England because I had no money and no. I think I used a couple of times and it was smoking heroin. So that's what I'd used in India. 
and it's not as good to shoot up. And, yeah, I just left alone. But as soon as I got back to Australia, I went back to using again. I got into NIDA then. Yeah, and you managed to, you know, sort of complete your course. Yeah, that was the amazing thing. I think that... I was driven to, I think there were a couple of people who doubted me, so I thought I'm going to prove them wrong and, yeah, because I was so addicted to, like, swimming and and I was getting really, I had really good rapport with everyone else around me and my lecturers were awesome, so I felt like I was succeeding and felt really good about myself. So Was it a secret? Oh, yeah. My lecturer, my stage management lecturer at the end of my time said, do your eyes really change when you, you become a different personality altogether and it looks like your eyes change completely? And um, I thought he's really picked it, hey, that my whole personality changes when I use. Because uh, at that time I remember actually being the head stage manager on one of the productions but overdosing across the road in the toilet block because I just had a shot of really good gear and like being late for the production and there were all these moths all over this tree on stage and I was meant to be like getting the moths away and <laughs> like this so how audience. Did, how did you come out of that? Like did you? That was when the teacher said, you know, I don't know what happened during that production but you look like a completely different person and, yeah. So sort of, so, <clears throat> sort of drawing attention to it but not, not being explicit about it. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of just letting you know that he knew. Yeah, that it really changed me. But so you, you started in your, so it was in your third year, so you managed to sort of... Not do it at, for the time because I was so poor. As a student, yeah. you only get paid, like, I think the first year I got $73 a week while studying, yeah. and then 82 then 91 in 19... 19- getting $91 a week. We didn't have to pay for our courses then. It was free, which was amazing. But the year after I finished, you had to pay. So, How did you deal with that as a young woman on such a small amount of money? Because the pressure of waking up to the hustle, and it wasn't as easy. Like we've been talking about, you know, programs with, you know, free clean syringes. How how did you, like, I imagine that was a challenge as well. When I first started, I started with glass syringes and I was one of the few people who could go to the chemist and had the gumption and balls to just go in and say, I want 126 um, gauge needles and they wouldn't question me because I knew what I was asking for but I had a glass fit fit and we knew that we had to boil it for 23 minutes between people to get rid of the hep B um, vir- virus at the time so we used to do that like <laughs> when I first started we'd take that time to boil it between people so because you know, that's also pre-google anything is that to actually find because that's a very specific I bet you had a timer on it as well we did yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And you obviously were also aware at the time because of the, you know, because what we've been talking with the, you know, things like the NSP is, is how that's impacted on reducing bloodborne virus transmission. Absolutely. And you were obviously aware of that as a, as a young user. It's really funny because HIV came around like in the 80s and I know it was the later 80s so that when, by the time I met the dad of all my kids, um, the five children, um, he and I both thought we'd better get a blood test before we sort of get really into our relationship and using together and stuff because we're both users. <clears throat> he came back 
um, as non-A, non-B. And I didn't. I just came back for core antibody B because a girlfriend of mine had had head B and I'd been like in a close contact of hers and apparently had become core antibody positive but never displayed the symptoms. So that always came up in my blood tests. But when I had my first child 12 months later, it came back that I was non-A, non-B. So I knew that my partner had given me hep C, which is what it was called in the very beginning, non-A, non-B. I actually did my hep C treatment in 2012 when the interferon each week with the injection and the ribavirin, and it worked. I did a six-month treatment. I was genotype 2, and, yeah, it was fine for me. It worked really well. And I was on, at the time, 30 milligrams of Done. You sound really, and you you are really informed, Shay, and has that been part of the process of managing your addiction and your use is, is making sure that you're informed about what you're doing? Is that, is that, has that been a big part of your wellbeing? And I tell you what, a really big thing has been being involved with the NSPs around and always having some relationship with the people who work there and because that's your interface with, like, the government on a local level and they're doing the best service, giving us something that has knocked blood-borne viruses off the scale, really. Like, we're almost... There's still a few people falling through the cracks, but it's a lot better than it used to be. You've had really good self-care. Because how important is that as someone who, who might choose to use heroin and, and inject drugs to also go, you know what, I need to have good self-care? I think it's vital. Like, it's all about mental health as well. I mean, um, it, like, that's all part of it. Um You don't have to shower every day, but it gives you more respect if you do and you feel clean and you feel, like, loved, I guess, in a way, that you do love yourself enough to care about it. And and cleaning your teeth is so vital too. Like, so many people just let things like that go. And I have lost a few teeth over the years, but for someone who's been on methadone now for over 20 years, and which I actually swore I would not do, <laughs> be one of those people who'd that? be on what, it. What, what, what was that? Was because of all the stigma and yeah. discrimination that's associated with it. Can you? Ex- yeah, sorry, yeah. I was just interested because the, the things that you're talking about, which is the washing, make sure your teeth are clean, is that seems to be the... The exact things that live, live what we call, we've been using the words, you know, junkies been coming up about how, how re- reactive that word is to, to people who choose to inject drugs and that. So, and that, what that, what a junkie, the stereotypical junkie looks like. And so you're sort of countering those all the time. Well, a lot of people say to me, I don't look like a junkie. And I just say, what does a junkie look like? You know, It's a, it's a hard <laughs> word, isn't yeah. it? Like you kind of go, that is a, you know, because it seems like that's part of the, of the negative narrative, um, which almost wants people not to be successful. Um, there's no space, you know. Have you found that? Totally. How are you accepted <laughs> as someone who's who's a high-functioning, you know, person in at, you, know, you work, you've had five children, that you've you've managed your life and you're still choosing to inject drugs? How how, how is that accepted by society, do you well, feel? I don't think it is at all, <laughs> really. Like, um, I'll give you an example. I've been working in this sector um, of disability for the last few years and um, I've gained so much from it. But one night I was with a participant I'd been with for six months 
and um, he was very ill. Um, but we had a discussion about um, pain, and um, he just said that I had no idea what pain was, and I sort of said, "Oh, you know, I beg to differ. I think, and if can you please keep this a secret? But I feel like I can trust you when I say this that I've been on methadone for, you know, a number of years." And he just said, "Oh." So if someone gave you a million dollars, you'd use again, wouldn't you? And I said, well, I don't know about that. Why do you say that? And why would it matter kind of thing? And I left the shift about an hour later and we kept on talking. I thought everything was all right. Half an hour later, I got a phone call from his 80-year-old mother saying, please do not come back again. He hasn't said why, but he never wants to see you again. And I knew exactly what it was. And he said, she said, he just won't explain what it is. So I was really thankful that he held my trust and didn't tell anyone what it was. But I had to explain to work what it was, um, why I had been um, let go and put in that position. I actually did sort of um, say something that wasn't quite true. It was a discrimination of another type and that was... I had divulged something else to him that I had been in a relationship with a woman at one stage in my relation in my life as well. And I knew he was quite religious and that would have upset him as well. But I know that he'd come from a place of addiction in the past. And I think it was his fear that I would do it and flaunt it in front of him. Even unbeknownst to him, I'd been doing it every day for the last six months in front of him anyway. So it was a way of protecting, he thought it was a way of protecting himself from from you who would... Maybe push it onto him again. It's not only you. Does that that hurt when when you're not saying? Because you're this warm, generous, caring person that suddenly who you are disappears. Absolutely. I just felt really... Well, I was shocked to begin with, but then I just felt really sort of cheated and felt like um, I don't really deserve this. Like why, why from one comment has it changed your whole opinion of me as a person and you've brought all this judgment forth? And he used to say, why can't I talk to my mum like I talk to you? Because he was talking to me about really personal things that he felt really deeply about. And we did have a great connection and I just thought, wow, you know, that he was so dismissive and just pushed me away so quickly and couldn't even... But he ended up passing away a month later. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, he was in a great deal of pain and I feel really sad that that happened. But I just thought I shouldn't have said that. And it's happened before. It must make you worry about trusting people. In the past, I lived in a really small sort of country area from Lismore. Um, It's better now that I've been in town for the last 15 or so years. But... um, Being in a small country town and the children sort of in a small school where there's only a certain amount of children there and then other parents find out that you're on methadone, that's when things started to change, like attitudes to my children as well. That that did happen. That did happen. how did that get out? Because I divulged it to someone who I thought I could trust and I wasn't able to. And that's another thing that you protect it so fully and you think, 
I feel like I'm cheating people because I'm not giving all of myself. I'm not letting them know who I really am. So I feel like I'm cheating myself in a way. So Shay, in talking about being honest in communications, I mean, how hard is it to be honest with your kids? What do you tell? How do you protect them? And did you ever inject or prep in front of the kids? Like the dad and I never, ever sort of openly shot up in front of them, but they'd know when we come out of a room that we were, but we'd openly sort of smoke cones in front of them after dinner kind of thing instead of drink alcohol. Um, So interestingly enough, none of them are big smokers, but they do like to have a drink. So, because we never had a lot of alcohol in the house either, um, like for parties and things, obviously we'd have it around, but not really like... So so they were... They were obviously fully aware of what was going on. They yeah. were. From they were. what age? Was that something, was that something um, you, you went, we're going to sit down and have the conversation or is it something that just organically? Well, we'd always have things like users' news get delivered every month by post. So we'd sort of leave them out. So by the time that the kids were sort of like 10 or teenagers, but they became reading material in the toilet or the bathroom almost as well so the kids could ask questions. But I don't think in a way they wanted to know. And when when one of my children, one of the boys walked in on me sort of flicking the syringe when he was about 15, he just backed out of the room. I said, come back. Um, he just went, no, and um, so I did it and then went out and had a chat to him and I said, look, I'm really sorry you had to see that. He said, don't do to my new boyfriend what I'd done to their dad. And their dad had sort of accused me of he'd only used because he wanted to be closer to me, but he'd always used our whole relationship, but he kind of blamed me using as well to for him to be using. So it was kind of a... <laughs> Um, yeah, a bit of a shock to hear that from one of my kids. Interestingly enough, n- no, we've never properly talked about it. He's in Melbourne now and he's doing really well at uni, um, like doing his honours and wants to do his masters. So I'm really proud of him and what he's achieved. Um, we're talking really well now, um, but I'd say there's that still a little bit of a rift and maybe the kid's thinking, did you give us everything that you possibly could? And that's all I've said to them is, did the best I could at the time. I always went to work when the kids were about two years old, but admittedly a lot of that money went towards, like, using, but we always had food on the table, the rent was always paid, the bills were always paid, So, but they might not have had horse riding lessons or something like that, but they'd always, you know, have the games they wanted to do or, yeah, I mean, and they'd always go on school excursions. So they never missed out on things. Shay is a woman who loves her life. She's incredibly positive and she's very outspoken as a person who injects drugs around the impacts of stigma. I saw her speak years ago at a conference on this very issue And when we did this project, when we're talking about who we might speak to, she was the first person who came to mind. I like her positivity and her confidence. She makes me wonder why we need people who inject drugs to suffer. Why is their happiness uncomfortable for us? That's what stigma does, I think. And it's probably more of a health threat than hep C or HIV. 
It, the only thing is I will say that there is still a lot of stigma and discrimination out there too. Oh, yeah. So it's really important that people realise that if they have, you know, any preconceptions of users and um, and people who use drugs, just try and give them a little bit more of a chance if you can. Like there are so many people out there you wouldn't even believe are using drugs on a daily basis to get through life. But they're not bad people. They don't want to hurt anyone. They just want to be able to function and get through. And... I think just because of the choice of drug that you take, you shouldn't be judged. And, yeah, although I am positive and I'm really thankful that I've had a fantastic life, um, it could have so easily gone the other way. And, yeah, but I've always tried not to play the victim role if I can um, because I know it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, we're really hoping that by sharing all these stories that we It'll have... It'll help that, people. Yeah, that people start to hear, you know, stories that they relate to or and that, you know, everyone was spoken to is someone's son or daughter or mother or sister. Very different stories. So yeah. that, that's part of that... Um, Narrative of yeah, it's everyone. Part of the narrative of everyone. It's 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 everyone. It's out there. Not everyone you know. Do you know the only commonality I think that we've had in this by talking to people is everyone's story has been really diverse, just like human beings are, like fingerprints or thumbprints. What's been the same are the repeated stories of stigma and shaming and discrimination. Um, and coming from a place of trauma too, probably. And tra- trauma's been the yeah. other thing too, is that trauma mm. and no real attempt to address trauma. Yeah. But just, and and just a lot of judgment around um, someone's, how someone may choose to self-medicate. So what does the daily life of a person who uses drugs look like when they're trying to manage a family? You've obviously had to be really organised, though. So to have that many kids, and I know having lived with a using addict myself, um, I know what that morning's like, waking <laughs> up and going, you know, who's holding, Where's where am I going to get the money? And, you know, he was always up really early. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and getting the, but then we didn't, you know, we didn't have to deal with a whole lot of kids to get, to get ready. So then you've got to get back and do the school run and then function like perfect mum. Absolutely. Do you know, a lot of the time um, I ended up getting a shift for four or five years between 3 in the morning and 7 a.m. So I finished at 7 a.m., which was perfect for me to get back home, which was a 20-minute drive away, but I could go past the dealer's place on the way in Lismore and get back in time. So, you were right. Yeah, right, right it was. It was right. And and the kids' school bus would go at 8.30 in the morning to get to high school by that stage. So we'd have them on that bus. And the other school was just up the road, so we'd drive the other kids at 9. So, yeah, as long it's, as... It's interesting that perception there as well is that users are kind of hopeless. There's a hopelessness about them, you know. There's that, but it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, what you're talking about is like actually oh. real precision, absolutely motivated, um, juggling lots of things, appearing normal, if you like. <laughs> i say that with inverted, you know. It's yeah. trying to appear like nothing's happening but there's all this stuff happening. I mean, it's actually qu- it's quite the opposite of what the perception is. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that once people are scored, they just nod off and, and that's it kind of for the rest of the day. But I always made sure I had either a job to go to or something active in the community. 
you believe that we need law reform? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like Alex Wodak is one of my favourite doctors of all time. He's just remarkable and he's so pro, you know, decriminalisation and getting, you know, even ice rooms happening and and I love the needle exchange. I mean, the, the injecting rooms, they're fantastic. We heard from Dr Alex Wodak in the last episode. He's widely credited as one of the doctors who led the public health initiative of the Safe Injecting Room, which was first set up in Sydney in King's Cross. It was the proposal of a new injecting room in Melbourne that saw the initial outpouring of vitriol from the media that we addressed in the first episode. There are some amazing peers. Um, actually, there have been a couple of funerals in Nimbin in the last few months. Um, there was a, an amazing guy called Tonto who had been in the uh, community for a long time and there were literally like 200 people in the park for his funeral and or for his, you know, wake kind of just a gathering of people who talked about how they'd used with him over the years and he was like one of the most, he had integrity and that was something that you very seldom hear about a junkie on the street who's a musician who's just sort of laid his heart, you know, open and bare to the community of Nimbin and always, you know, done, you know, pop deals and stuff to make his earned for the day, but always had integrity about it. And I thought that's amazing that, you know, that people can still have integrity and why not? <laughs> like, and why can't we be functioning? Why can't we be, um, like, embraced by everyone? Like, every culture matters, every, like, minority matters. Like, yeah, I, I just think that we have so much to learn from everyone if we're open enough to it that we can sort of gain valuable experience from people who have used, valuable experience from people who, um, like one really thing that shocked me about my mother was she did psychiatry, uh, yeah, she, she did psychology, sorry, and she became a psychologist. And after a few years she became, um, in inverted commas, zero tolerant of drugs. So the one time that I told her I was on methadone, that was her comeback to me, and I thought, you'll never accept me. And I said, what happens if I'd been someone who was depressed and needed to have, you know, antidepression medication for the rest of my life or I was a diabetic and I needed diabetes treatment? Like, would you treat me differently as well? Like, what's the difference really? Or someone with a mental health imbalance? Like, really, I'm just like medicating myself in a way that I think gives me enough confidence in myself and um, and I suppose love of myself to be able to carry on and to give to others too. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. look, thank you for giving Thanks, me the Dave. opportunity. No okay. Lovely to meet you guys. You <laughs> too. You've just been listening to Shay's story, the final episode of The Daily Dose. Over the last eight episodes, we've listened to the stories of people who inject drugs. We've heard deeply personal and at times painful stories of people trying to get by, navigate the system, have good relationships with their family and community and just basically feel good about themselves. 
Look, it's clear that stigma around injecting drugs has impacted on their lives and their health, and in some cases on their ability to reach out for care when they really needed it. Look, we can't change what has happened to people and we can't actually change what they do, but we can change how we treat people, how we speak of them and to them. A real big thanks to our storytellers, Megan, Marco, Nikki, Luke, Manny, Hayden, Heidi, Digby and Shay. And another big thank you to Dr Alex Wodak and Dr Carla Trelaw for their research and their academic insights. And of course, thank you to the staff of the NSP, the Needle Syringe Program, who gave us their insights, Sashi, Darren, Larissa and Jeanette, and a huge thank you to Franklin, who cooked us an amazing Indian meal in his home and has such a passionate belief in us, the storytellers and this project. Thanks to Jen for championing this project. And thank you to you for listening to these stories and being part of a community that doesn't stigmatise people who inject drugs. This podcast was made possible through the support of North Coast Harp and funded by the New South Wales Ministry of Health. I'm Mandy Nolan. And I'm George Catsey. And you've just had your final dose. Needle and Syringe Programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website www.bluenot.org.au.